Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us for this episode. We are here in Memphis, Tennessee with a live audience. Yeah, we don't get to do, we don't do this enough. And in fact, uh, all three of us are actually in the same room. Uh, we yeah. don't do that very much anymore uh, because we're in different parts of the country. Uh, but anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've written a number of books, the le- latest of which is in the house of Tom Bombadil. And um, anyway, let me just kick it over to you, Tom. Tell us a little about yourself. I am Tom Price. I teach theology, ethics, and philosophy. And yes, it's a joy for me to be back in the presence with Glenn and Chris and guests. Uh, Yeah, we, under strange circumstances, have been faithful in recording, but it's always better in person. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's right. Glenn. Glenn Sunshine. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview a retired and recovering historian, and a ministry associated Reflections Ministries. My latest book is 32 Christians Who Changed Their World. And we are joined today by, by an old friend, someone who's been on the show before, George Grant. George, uh, how you doing? Tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm doing great, and it is great to be with you guys again. <laughs> it's, uh, it's always fun to, uh, to catch you remotely, but <laughs> I think, Tom, you're right. It's so much better face-to-face and yeah. to be able to be here. I'm also a, a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America. That's why I'm here in Memphis. That and the barbecue. That's right, that's right. <laughs> yeah, let's and, be honest, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, too, have written uh, so many books that, uh, that um, most of them are now out of print and available in garage sales throughout <laughs> the South. <clears throat> is this a... <laughs> right. Excellent. Is this, is this one of yours? So, yes, next week, a, a book that I've been trying to get published for probably 10 years, a book by Isaac Watts on lifetime learning is now out and uh, will be released at the uh, Classical Schools Conference in Pittsburgh uh, this next week. And I am am so delighted. Isaac Watts, the father of... uh, of English hymnody, right. uh, over a thousand hymns. His practice was to write a new hymn or psalm setting for every sermon he preached. Oh man, man, make make you feel like you're not doing anything. Yeah, right? and he was he, he was the uh, he was a successor to the great John Owen at the Mark Lane Chapel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I just he hate wrote those guys. I just he wrote a guys. slew of other theology books <laughs> and a logic text. Is that correct? A, a logic text yeah. that was the primary logic mm-hmm. textbook for Cambridge, Oxford, and Harvard yeah. for generations. Uh, but the sequel to that book was a book on lifetime learning. Yeah. And that has been out of print largely for, for several generations. And it's really golden. And I've wanted it published. And I finally, through tenacity, have, have uh, pulled the wool over somebody's eyes. <laughs> and it's, it's well, now going to be published. Yeah, it, it, you know, considering uh, the person behind it and all of that, I'm sure it's rich. Do we want to talk about that today? We're kind of leaving it in your court uh, to kind of take us where we want. You know, we did a little teaser we yeah, I thought we were going to talk about let's, uh, let's talk about, about American history, or yeah. let's talk about architecture. I'm ready to talk about architecture. Yeah, wherever and, you want to go. Yeah. <laughs> the next tour, yes, yes. Yeah, wherever we, you want to go, George, we're we're, we're well, ready I'm, for the I'm, ride. I'm headed off to Scotland 
in September and October, one of my areas of academic interest is Thomas Chalmers, a great 19th century Scottish reformer who was an apologist like Doug. He was a brilliant uh, strategist, a partner with William Wilberforce in the abolition of the slave trade. Uh, He was uh, heralded by Spurgeon as the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul, uh, and he's largely unknown. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I've been working on Chalmers projects for ages, and uh, Karen and I, my wife and I, love to stay in the little uh, Fife Shire fishing village where he grew up. Mm. There's almost nothing there except two great pubs and a coffee shop. <laughs> that's all you need. That's, that's, a, all, that's you need. all you need. <laughs> so we're going to go, and hopefully... I'll be underway with what will... I've done several small Chalmers projects, but what I'm working on next is a big biography. Wow. Well, that, well let's, let's kind of roll with this a little bit. So it, this is something to think about. We often think that if we're going to make a difference, if we're going to do something glorious, that we've got to go to someplace like New York City or Los Angeles, you know, the center of, like, cultural power... To, to get it done. But here's right. a guy who, this is where he was born, you said? He was born in this little town, Inster. It's mm-hmm. spelled Anstruther, mm-hmm. uh, right on the Fifeshire coast. And uh, he went to St. Andrews mm-hmm. at, at the age of 11. Mm-hmm. And uh, then uh, at the age of 19 was ordained, even though at the time the Scottish church required you to be 21. He was so precociously brilliant <laughs> that they broke their rule yeah. okay, and okay. ordained him preach, at yeah. 19. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the catch. He went on and he pastored a little church in Kilmeny, yeah. uh, which is a tiny, tiny little village yeah. about 20 miles from St. Andrews. Mm. And uh, for the first four years that he was there, he was still unconverted. Wow. But uh, in a series of calamitous family events and in his own uh, sickness, he, he came to understand the gospel, and it was radically transformative. Yeah, yeah. He stayed there in Kilmeny for the next several years and started Bible societies, which helped launch the Bible society movement, yeah. missionary societies, which helped launch the missionary movement. He began to disciple young men like the Bonar brothers, like Robert Murray McShane, um, a host of others, Robert Chalmers Burns, and and just a, an extraordinary number of young men who ultimately transformed the missions movement mm-hmm. and the Bible Society movement and the evangelical movement for a generation. Yeah. And Chalmers is forgotten. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he was the fountainhead of all of it. Yeah, they knew not Joseph. That's uh, kind of the... Kind of the thing. But you know, a generation ago, nobody knew anything about Bavink either. Yeah, and we've yeah, had yeah. this great resurgence of Bavink yeah. studies, which has been enormously helpful. Right. And so I think, uh, you know, Chalmers may be next. Well, so when we, when we think about a person like this man who's so prolific, so kind of capacious uh, and effective in his work, um, and, you know, he's a pastor. So, Tell us a little bit about, can you get into like his daily routines or, you know, what made him what he was? Well, he wrote a a tremendous amount, a lot of books, 
Uh, he was prolific in letter writing. His his collection Talk of about letters. About you feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> well, his collection of letters published by Banner of Truth reveals a lot about yeah. his life patterns. But after his conversion, he decided to make an intense study of the New Testament. And one of the things that he did was he he attempted to identify what he called the keystone verse for every chapter in the New Testament. Hmm. And then he would memorize that verse. And his theory was that with six memorized verses, he would have the arc of the entire argument of the book of Ephesians. Right, right. The arc of the entire argument of the book of Galatians. Right. And with just six memorized verses, uh, you know, he, he did this for every book in the New Testament and then... Um, but he never wrote it down. His disciples would talk about it. Uh, McShane talks about how uh, Chalmers would use this method as a kind of a Lexio Divina mm, approach yeah. to each chapter of the New Testament. Mm. And uh, that's the way he discipled young men. And they would, they would walk through the streets of St. Andrews, quoting their keystone verses mm. as they made their way to Lord's Day worship. Mm. And... Uh, it was it was radically transformative. Uh, so one of the things that he obviously did was he spent a great deal of time just digging deep into the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Uh, he believed that it was necessary to set aside at least three hours every single day for intense study of the scriptures mm-hmm. if you were going to be an effective teacher mm-hmm. of the Word of God. Um, he also believed in evangelism, uh, and so he, he was a pioneer in the recovery of the old parish ministry mm. model. Okay. He visited every single member mm. of his parish, and by every single member of his parish, I don't mean every single member of his church. Right. right. I mean everybody in the community he visited and and attempted to disciple or minister to or bring comfort to. Right. Uh, and he, he attempted to do that four times every year. Wow. wow. So he literally made the circuit. So, so how large would the community have been uh, when he was doing this? Well, Kilmeny and the, the area around it at that time would have been about 15,000 people. Wow. So he would see 15,000 people four times a year. <laughs> That's, uh, again, something that makes you feel really guilty. <laughs> and, and, and he would so when, write letters. <laughs> and write letters, yeah. Right. You, you but go, maybe it was to the, a lot of these people. And three yeah, hours. I was at your house yesterday and you weren't there. <laughs> Where were you? <laughs> I'm having a little fun. <laughs> and we, we think four emails a year. Yeah, that, these days. That, that's, la- that's, that's laborious. That's really laborious. <laughs> Anyway, well, George, real quick, yeah. you probably find this, I think we, we know similarly, it tends to be people like that get more done with that kind of schedule. It seems that we have, again, all these devices to make things quicker, but we're getting so few things done, even study, to do three hours of scripture a day was, I, I understand that the world was set up differently then, but still what they filled in a day yeah. didn't slow things down. And, and there is something about that kind of, it's a, I think it's a spiritual reality that as one is oriented towards the things of God the right way, that productivity is, is a byproduct. Yeah, you know, I, I have a number of friends who have 
begun to take disciplinary action in their own lives to get rid of some of the clutter, mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, to make sure that their study is not just cluttered with electronic devices, mm-hmm. to have a place where you can go to sit, to mm-hmm. actually read, uh, where you're not constantly being beeped and buzzed mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and rung up and all mm-hmm. of the rest. And I think that that's something that, uh, that we can... Uh, begin to implement. We don't have to be Luddites uh, in the rejection of technology to recognize that the patterns of our lives have become utterly mad. When you walk into a restaurant and you see five families sitting there and four of the five, um, well, every single person is staring at their phone. Right, right. Um, Or you know, the madness of walking into the Sistine Chapel and uh, seeing people trying to take selfies. (laughs) (laughs) And they don't don't ever actually look Look, up. Yeah, yeah. They're too busy looking at themselves looking up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the things that Chalmers reminds me of is the incredible value of slowing down going deep, making relationships actually matter. Yeah. And and doing this all for the glory of God, for the for the for the building up of the kingdom. And while we are sacrificing, in a sense, worldly pleasure to build up the kingdom, what we find is something far greater than worldly pleasure. Mm. We find joy. Yeah. Right. Now, oh, now you know, you and I and Chalmers, we're, we share the same profession. Um, we're all you, hobbits. <laughs> <laughs> well, you may be Tom Bombadil, but I'm just a hobbit. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I see sometimes some uh, photographs that you share about uh, your library and the environment that you, you uh, do your work in. Uh, some of the things that you're doing with regard to how you order your own life uh, due to your appreciation for, you know, Chalmers and others and how, what you've learned from them? Well, one of the things I think is really important is to recognize that beauty, goodness, and truth all go together. Right. Uh, we tend to zero in on one or another of those things, but it, it's, uh, it, it's really important to be surrounded by beauty. I, I, I love... Uh, Edith Schaefer's whole notion that a meal is not a meal mm. uh, without a vase filled with flowers, <laughs> as she would say. Right, um, right. I, I, you know, otherwise it's just fuel. Right, right. Uh, so part of one of the, you know, part of what Karen and I do in our home is we just, you don't have to spend a lot of money, but surround yourself with beauty, surround yourself with the things that uh, that really create a sense of delight and settledness, mm-hmm. and that that's an important thing. the The other thing is, we we do actually read, and we take Neil Postman's uh, admonition that one of the most powerful things that anyone can do to resist the lure of the world in these days is to unplug things. Right. Right. Yeah, so unplug things, but then maybe also give yourself something good to read. Right, right. Yeah. And we, we uh, Karen and I both uh, start every day with the scriptures. We uh, spend time in the word. We do multiple 
sorts of Bible programs at the same time. I have a read-through plan, and then I have sort of a zeroing-in devotional plan. And then, because I'm a preacher, I have the stuff that I've I've got to work on. Um, I try and develop a reading plan for every year, the, the books that I want to, to read. Um, I'm in a season of travel right now, so I'll be on airplanes a lot. So I always try and have a, a good audio book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, uh, for instance, right now I'm listening to 22 glorious hours of Umberto Echoes, The Name of the oh, Rose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, George, one, one thing I think you said that's really important that I think is often overlooked. There are different ways of reading the Bible. Yes. And each of them has its own value. Yes. So um, I, I, I learned this because um, at one point I was going through uh, Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. And in the, in the study guide there on the chapter on prayer, it said, read through all four Gospels in one sitting and notice everything Jesus has to say about prayer. Yeah. And I, I was in seminary. I had never read that much of the Bible in, at one time. Yeah, yeah. Right. And it, I realized that when you do that, you get something completely different out of it than when you read it pericope by pericope. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And if you if you see it from that forty thousand foot mm-hmm. level, going really fast, mm-hmm. you see things you would never see otherwise: mm-hmm. patterns, repetitions, mm-hmm. uh, phrases. The Old Testament starts to bleed through. Uh, in right. ways that are unexpected in that you you always see it in Matthew, but all of a sudden you start seeing it mm. with such clarity in John and Luke and Mark, and it's so powerful. Yeah. So so you've got that. You've also got devotional reading. In my case, I like to do Lexio Divina. You get something totally different out of that than you do from the other. Yes. And then in-depth study is is yet another way of doing it. Yes. So I, I like the, the the way you integrate all of those because that you know each of them, it, it's something I don't think most people appreciate. Each of them has its own unique value and they're complementary. Yeah, and they give you entirely different things. Uh, one of the things that I try to do once, at least once every two years, is I try to read the entire. Uh, canon of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation in a single month. Wow. And it, it means that I'm not reading much else, right. but and I'm right. reading a lot, but my goodness, what you see is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And uh, the echoing voices, uh, if, you, if you're in Genesis, you know, one day and three days later, you're in Numbers, you're seeing things that are very, very different. It's so rich and so powerful. Uh, I, I highly recommend that as a discipline. It's something that you might not be able to do in the workaday world. So, so do it when you're on vacation or something like that. Now, when it comes to the practical kind of task of, of accomplishing what you just described, are, you know, we all, uh, I think, struggle with uh, inattentiveness, you know, wandering thoughts, uh, find ourselves uh, maybe having actually thought we read something uh, and we didn't. <laughs> we say, well, where am I in this book? Uh, I don't think I remember anything I've read for the last uh, 15 minutes. Right. Uh, you know, well, are there any tips that you could give us uh, in terms of how to maybe approach something like that? When I start getting weary and I still have a lot of reading to do, one of the things that I do is I stand up, start walking around, and I read out loud. Okay. Mm. 
Uh, reading silently is, um, is, is actually incredibly helpful, but it also cuts off a, a large portion of particularly beautiful writing. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. you need to hear the rhythms, mm. uh, the, the alliteration. You can see it on the page. But if you're reading silently, mm. you're not hearing it. And all of a sudden, it, it becomes musical. If, uh, mm. if I'm reading the Puritans, if I'm, like right now I'm reading John Owen. Mm-hmm. If, if I'm reading Owen... I, I can easily get bogged down on point 27 yeah. and realize I think I've missed the previous 19 points. <laughs> um, but if I read it out loud, it, it, it starts to stick to my ribs and I start to realize, okay, I, I know where this is going. And then the walking around part, you know, part of that is just I'm a preacher and I <laughs> I've can't confine myself uh, to being behind the pulpit. Right. So I wander a great deal. And uh, so if I'm reading out loud in my library, it might drive Kieran crazy uh, upstairs or whatever, but uh, I, I find that there is a beautiful rhythm in that, and it, it, it causes me to be much more alert. Now, we've talked about reading scripture, which is obviously... What, go ahead. Let me, let me jump in here. Yeah. Um, in the Middle Ages, when you were doing Lexio Divina, uh, the first step is Lexio. It's, it's reading. And they always did it out loud. Yes. Because they want to engage the body, not just the mind and the spirit. Yeah. And so that action of reading out loud, there, I, you know, I think we underestimate it. Yeah, as Peter Gilchrist uh, famously stole from Augustine, there is a physical side to being spiritual. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, we see this. Uh, I mean, I remember uh, one of my uh, professors who did a lot of writing on the incarnation and the sacraments, noting how the whole thing about the sense of smell, the sense of hearing, all these senses are part of that redemption in incarnation. And they're brought up into it. So the spiritual and, and the, the embodied are, are, can't be detached. And so, yeah, we oftentimes look at past theologians and practices as, oh, that's just out of date and it was kind of clueless based on what we know now, but it was actually engaging dimensions like that that we tend to ignore, especially when we divide oftentimes the material from the, the spiritual or, or, or blend them too much into each other. You just mentioned Karen, maybe overhearing you walk around and read out loud. So um, getting to the practical side of this, so let's say you're a very self-conscious person <laughs> and you're in a house full of other people you know, uh, what are the things that you need to do to kind of address this? Like, this is great advice, but if like you're a mother and you've got two or three little people that are needing your attention and you're uh, reading out loud and kind of wandering around uh, and you're feeling very self-conscious about this, you know, any, any thoughts on any of that? Like, obviously, having a nice study is great. Right. <laughs> Close the door and maybe put some extra soundproofing up. <laughs> <laughs> But any other, anything else you can do? Yeah, um, go outside. <laughs> uh, there so the, you can annoy the neighbors. <laughs> well, I, I, this Amen. is another thing I think, Glenn, <laughs> that's really important. There's a difference in reading the scriptures uh, or reading George Herbert poetry hmm. or even reading the highwayman came riding, 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 the highwayman came riding up to the old end door. Hmm. There's something different about doing that outside. Hmm. 
uh, than insight. You, you've seen enough BBC uh, movies to realize that uh, taking a stroll around the garden uh, with a, a book of poetry uh, becomes a, this kind of a cultural uh, uh, iconic moment. There's something to that. Yeah. Uh, reading Wordsworth and Coleridge outside yeah. is very different than reading Wordsworth and Coleridge inside. And uh, reading Byron outside is the only place to read Byron because you sure don't want your wife to hear you. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of feel indecent. <laughs> Now, now, when we think about sort of the range of things to read, you know, obviously, as Christians, we place an emphasis on Scripture that, that has pride of place. How do we mix in other things, though? Is there an appropriate sort of weighting of different kinds of things to read? Have you thought about that? Well, yes, and I, I've thought about it a lot because I've taught literature to high school and college students, and I've done uh, reading programs for adults, and... <clears throat> There are seasons in life where a young mom is just not going to have the time to do the kind of reading that she really would want to do. And it's really important, I think, for us, particularly in the classical Christian education world and um, in uh, the world of podcasts and everything, to, to simply say to moms, it's okay. Right. Another day is coming. <laughs> you will have the opportunity and right now, that's, that's not what you're supposed to do. So I think one of the things we have to recognize are seasons in life mm -hmm. and be realistic about what we can do. Mm -hmm. People create these lists of books that they want to mm -hmm. read in the course of the year, and they feel so defeated at the end of the year when they've not gotten through it. Mm -hmm. So uh, to, to be realistic is, I think, the first thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing is to find people that you really respect and admire. And don't just read what they've written, read what they're reading. You know? okay. And okay. Yeah. I think that's a really, that's yeah. a lesson that I learned about the Founding Fathers. Yeah. Uh, to, uh, to read what the Founding Fathers wrote is helpful, but to read what the Founding Fathers read yeah is transformative. Yeah, I've often thought, you know, when it comes to, say, Calvin, I just wish more Calvinists would read things that Calvin read. <laughs> right. You start to realize why Calvin loved John Chrysostom. Yeah, he uh, You start to realize, yeah, yeah. oh, my goodness, he read yeah. uh, the Patristic Fathers, yep. and he soaked it in, and he was able to separate yeah. uh, the wheat from the chaff, and he did so gladly, yeah. recognizing that even in his own day, there would yeah. be wheat and chaff. Yeah. And, of course, he, he heavily leaned on Pierre Viret, yeah. uh, another of the greats who is largely forgotten but mm -hmm. ought not to be. He had the largest Amen. church in Geneva. Uh, he was, uh, Calvin believed that he was uh, this incredible preacher, and he, he uh, oftentimes would sit and just listen to Viret preach so that he could learn how to preach. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, it's, there, there's so much richness there. Well, I often said, you know, I would probably have more money in life if there weren't all the different books listed at the bottom of the page of the people <laughs> I read. <laughs> but that's usually where I put my well, life that so together. True. <laughs> yep. That's right. You're a poor but rich man. That's yeah. right. One, one, one thing to keep in mind about Chalmers in, in this context is he had servants. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it, you late know, in life, he did. Well, you know, at least the housekeeper, those kinds of things. Yes. So that ends up offloading a certain amount of time because people mm-hmm. are taking care of things for him. Yeah, he so. he did not marry until rather late into his Kilmeny pastorate, uh, but his sister came and mm-hmm. and kept house for him, and uh, so that was that was you know, really important. Then when he he eventually moved to St. Andrews, uh, to Glasgow, and to Edinburgh, and each of those places he did have servants. Yeah, someone, you know, again, someone taking care of the house matters a huge amount. When yes, you're, absolutely. You're doing and Thomas right. had five daughters as well, and they... They, they helped out. Well, yeah. they whipped him into shape. <laughs> now, when we think about, say, other kinds of reading, so, you know, just a little while ago, you quoted Postman or alluded to Neil Postman. So obviously you're not just reading uh, devotional literature, you're not just reading scripture, you're reading more broadly, you're reading biographies, reading other kinds of things. What are the things that uh, you tend to read? I mean, what, give us a sense of your sort of scope. I, I read pretty much almost anything except trash. Mm-hmm. I try to avoid the trash, <laughs> uh, but increasingly that's harder and harder to, <laughs> to, to avoid. I, I love detective stories. Oh, okay, I fine. love um, I, I, I love adventure fiction. I um, I have read every single one of the John Buchan adventure oh, yeah, stories, right, right. and I love those. Uh, he he sort of created the the genre that gave us James Bond and all right, the rest. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I love biographies. You know, Andrew Roberts right now is my favorite biographer. His his biography, I've, I've probably read 10 or 12 biographies of Winston Churchill. And so I thought when I saw his great big fat biography of Churchill, I thought, well, yeah, maybe it'll be all right. There was something <laughs> new on every page. It was extraordinary. And his, uh, his biography on uh, King George... Um, is uh, mind-boggling. It's just absolutely mind-boggling, called The Last King of America. It's b- brilliant. Mm-hmm. So uh, his, his biography of Napoleon's wonderful. Uh, Paul Johnson is one of my yeah. favorite historians. Uh, uh, you know, Colin Thubrin is one of my favorite travel writers. Mm-hmm. I, I love reading uh, travel adventure stories. So, um, yeah, I, I read... I read poetry. I, Umberto Eco is yeah. one of my all-time heroes. I've got every book that he has written, philosophical, his wordplay stuff, his, you know, uh, signs stuff. Uh, you were reading his stuff on, uh, recently. I saw it somewhere on the, his art and beauty. Was that, what's the book? What's yeah, book? yeah. Uh, he, that, that was based on his doctoral dissertation yeah. on the beauty of uh, and art in uh, Thomas Aquinas's yeah. theology. It's really, really yeah. good and great for uh, a good, hard-nosed Presbyterian to read yeah. because it just <laughs> opens up your world in remarkable ways. Nice. Well, to that point, what are some things that you'd like to see us, say, in the Reformed world, uh, getting into when it comes to our reading? You, you just mentioned something by Echo. Yeah, I think that uh, we need to read broadly and deeply. Uh, we need to know our stories. I think uh, C.S. Lewis's 
uh, advice in his introduction to Athanasius's on the incarnation is right. And that is that we should read at least two old books uh, for every new one that we read. He says, you know, reading outside of our time uh, really uh, opens up a whole different perspective for us. Uh, and books from the future would be just as good as books from the past, but they're just harder to get. <laughs> so we need to read broadly. We need to read deeply. We need to read multiple genres uh, to, to make us have better facility. Those of us who are responsible to uh, stand at the sacred desk and open the word of God to our people uh, week by week, uh, we need to know what our people are reading. Mm -hmm. uh, so when my students were just all agog over Harry Potter, <laughs> I read Harry Potter. Sure, when sure. they became agog over Hunger Games, I read the Hunger Games books. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know what they were reading. Mm. Um, and, and so that I could... I could interact with, with yeah. all of that. Yes. Uh, we have a responsibility, I think, mm -hmm. in the modern world to, to, to be conversant. And I think, you know, in, in the previous uh, podcast, when uh, Doug was talking about the necessity of asking questions and knowing what uh, others in our world have experienced, I, I think that's, that's really important. Mm -hmm. And... So our reading should reflect that. Uh, I also really believe in following the rabbit trail. Hmm. Uh, I used to tell my students, if we'd get off track in a conversation, I right. used to tell them, it's okay, the rabbit trail is the point. Uh, um, That's actually the secret to the podcast. We just don't, you know, we, we have a general idea of what we're going to talk about. <laughs> really? You have a general idea at the beginning of this? Well, actually, actually maybe that. not. <laughs> we, thought, we thought we did. <laughs> but I think, you know, sometimes we forget that it's the process it's the journey, not necessarily all of the benchmarks along the way. It's just the journey uh, that sparks our imagination and quickens our heart and causes new interests and uh, turns the light on. And that is just, that's very much what Isaac Watts is talking about in, in pursuing lifetime learning. Yeah. So even talking about, obviously, literary uh, pursuits. Um, when we think about, say, pastoral ministry, obviously there's, a, I think, a, an easy connection or I think a, the move from sacred literature to other forms of literature is, is not as sort of challenging in terms of um, a move as other things could be. Are there other things, though, that say, uh, as you know, as a pastor, when we think about Chalmers, did, did he have any kind of uh, uh, interest that maybe would surprise us to learn he had? Well, he he he, will, he understood the necessity of taking care of his body. Okay, and so he was an avid walker, as so many Scotsmen were. Uh, he gave up golf because he said it was bad for his sanctification. 
but, which but is, he played. Which is so wise. <laughs> but that's a, that's a fun story, obviously, for, yeah. for, for many. Especially but, up there near St. Andrews. He, loved to, climb. he okay. loved to climb when he would go out on these uh, long hikes. Like uh, Tolkien and Lewis used right, to do, right. uh, they, they would love to ramble, as they right. called it. So that was one of the things. Um, Chalmers was also very interested in folk music. I know. And by folk music, I mean the regional distinctives yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, in each part of Scotland. Mm. And so he loved to, to gather um, the, 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 the various folk musicians to play. Um, I, I recently did a, a little piece on nostalgia where I talked about uh, the fact that, you know, do you, do you remember uh, when uh, going out to dinner meant uh, going out into the backyard and having dinner in the backyard? <laughs> you, you remember when um, uh, playing some music actually meant gathering everybody on the yeah. front porch right. and uh, with mismatched instruments and you just begin to sing at the top of your lungs and everybody is laughing and singing? Mm. Chalmers loved that kind of picture. Yeah, yeah. And it's the sort of thing that we see sort of sparked a little bit with Samuel Johnson in the mm. Boswell um, uh, account of his life where he would gather at these parties and, and Johnson would always call for music. Mm -hmm. Chalmers loved music, which, again, that's really interesting given the Scottish mm. uh, tradition of non-instrumental, yeah. non-hymnody, mm, yeah. psalms-only worship. Yeah. Uh, but he loved uh, mm. Isaac Watts, for instance. Yeah. He just, uh, and would often sing as, as he walked. Uh, he was renowned as an excellent whistler. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, an aspiration I've always had as a pastor. <laughs> I wish I could whistle better. <laughs> but that, that's fun. That's fun. That, that See, when we think about... And for, to, for <laughs> just an affirmation of you, he was a fine cartoonist. Oh, was he? Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's yeah. fun. I, because I think sometimes we, we, we want to pigeonhole our spiritual heroes... We don't ever think about them doing anything that, beside reading scripture or preaching or praying. You know, we don't have a sense of what their lives were like as a whole. And maybe some of the more endearing things about some of these people had to do with those things we just aren't aware of. Yeah. Like Chalmers the Great Whistler. <laughs> I remember that now. <laughs> so or or, or Robert Murray McShane loved to whittle. Yeah. He would, uh, he, wherever he went, he had a little pocket knife and he would whittle. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah. 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 The, the, the question I have is how many hours did he have in a day? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the question I have about a lot of people well, like this. Like, yeah. you know, you, you, like Kuiper, you know, he's like, what? You did what? You did what? I'll never forget Mortimer Adler uh, when he was uh, he was giving his famous uh, he was giving one of his t talks on on one of his students who he was trying to use Aquinas's um, five ways to show it could prove the existence of God and the student was just not getting it and not getting it and not getting it and he's like I just can't I can't believe in you know God from this and and uh, and so finally after hours 
the student asked Mortimer Adler, would you, would you, you know, well, tell me something else about a kindness. And he goes, well, he horseback rode about 13 hours a day. He said, why didn't you begin with that? There <laughs> could never be someone who accomplished what he did and rode horseback 13 hours a day unless there was a guy <laughs> of that sort. <laughs> right, right. Well, this is fun. Now, now with Chalmers, did, did he have children? He had five daughters. Oh, that, that you did mention the Yeah, and uh, two of them married pastors, and uh, his oldest daughter, Anne, uh, married William Hanna, who became the official biographer wow. of, of he, Chalmers and collected his letters and collected his sermons and so was the sounds, editor of, of his memoirs. So it sounds as though he had a, a really loving and fruitful relationship with those. His people. wife, Grace, was, um, was an embodiment. She was a trophy of mm -hmm. grace. And uh, Fred Greco, when he was elected moderator uh, yesterday, made the comment that uh, he was able to do all of the things that he was yeah, able to right. do because his wife right. uh, was there, uh, not just as his helpmeet, but she was the one who really held mm -hmm. the, the household together and held his life together. Right. And that was most assuredly true of grace. Grace was... Uh, an extraordinary woman, uh, and uh, their daughters were just incredible. Uh, one of the daughters, who never married, uh, went on to become a philanthropist. Hmm. Um, she inherited wealth from an uncle who was in the shipping business, and uh, she used that to, uh, to plant churches. You know, wow. one of the things that Chalmers did near the end of his life, in the last five years of his life, was he walked away from the Church of Scotland uh -huh. because of increasing liberalism and the intrusion of the government. And uh, he helped to establish the Free Church of mm, Scotland. Right. And in the last five years of his life, he was able to raise the money to build more than 400 churches, 500 schools, wow. uh, and all of the churches had parsonages so that the pastors who wound up being kicked out yeah. uh, had a place to live. He did this in five years. Uh, and his, uh, this one daughter kind of took up the mantle, and she raised money to plant churches all over Scotland. Wow. Yeah, marvelous stuff. Anyway, uh, kind of overwhelming, too. You know, you kind of sit there and say, man, I've done nothing with my life. Because we, we all kind of feel like, we, we feel like hobbits now. <laughs> we are hobbits. So tell us a little bit about anything else you want to, Fill us in on it for the next 10 minutes of the show or so. Well, you know, one of the things that, uh, that you often talk about uh, and a question that you often have is, uh, so, so given how far we've gone in this culture, what hope do we have? How, how, do, we, how do we bring uh, the, the, the sense of sanity back to our world? And there, there are a host of ways. We've been talking about all of them this whole time. Right, right. Uh, when we model before a watching world, this, uh, this life filled with, uh, with, you know, brokenness, but, but gladness and joy. Mm. Uh, they see that, and they know that there is something there. Mm. And oftentimes, when all is well, they don't want to pay attention, and they don't want to hear Right. But when the crisis comes and they need help 
or they need an answer, where do they go? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They come to us. Yeah. Now, I think the great hope that we have in an age of cultural madness is not that we have better philosophies. We do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. The, the great hope is that we have a practical way to live out those philosophies right. with gladness and joy. Right. Uh, we, we are planting gardens all around our culture right now. And uh, those who live in the howling wasteland will catch a glimpse of the garden mm. and say, oh, I need to go home. Yeah. And that, I think, is our great hope. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't read books because we're eggheads. Uh, we read books because we know that we don't know everything that we need to know. And we've not yet become everything that we ought to be. And we've not yet done all that we ought to do. And so we're, we're yearning to see sanctification go right down to our bones mm-hmm. and shape us in, in every conceivable way to bring forth beauty, goodness, and truth, Mm. and a manifestation of the goodness of the kingdom to a watching world. Therein is great hope. Um, You know, um, Doug quoted Chesterton's uh, quip about um, the church being thrown to the dog seven times in church (laughs) history. Uh, He and his dear friend, Hilaire Belloc, would often uh, end their debates uh, with people like George Bernard Shaw or H.G. Wells, uh, and they would say, the church is a perpetually defeated thing, Mm -hmm. and she always survives her conquerors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that we need to uh, continue to recognize. We, We tend to get in the doldrums about the brokenness of our world, Mm. when in fact what we ought to do is, can you believe that God chose the likes of us (laughs) to be the spokesman for the kingdom in this day and age? He didn't choose Luther. He didn't choose Calvin. He didn't choose Spurgeon. He didn't Mm. choose Chalmers. (laughs) He chose Chris. (laughs) He chose Glenn. That's insane. He chose Tom. (laughs) He chose us. That's wow. Yeah, it's great. That's, that's great. Amazing. Yeah, you know, you know, perspective. You know, we feel like at the moment as though the world is falling apart, and it is. Um, but there will come a time when people will look at our point in history and say, "Man, I wish I could have lived during those glory days." <laughs> those were the days when being a Christian really uh, cost you something. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. And the churches that are really, really taking a stand. Hmm are having to crawl through glass, mm-hmm. as you said. Mm-hmm. But they're also seeing the fruit of kingdom faithfulness. Yep. Um, yeah. you know, they're growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, churches all through COVID were growing yeah, while other gone. churches yeah. were shutting their doors <laughs> yeah. and, and going bankrupt. Yeah. And that is an emblem of hope to remind us that the gospel is true, Christ is on the throne, his dominion is an everlasting mm-hmm. dominion, and it shall not pass away. The kingdoms of this world are the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Or as Abraham Kuyper would say, there's still not one square inch right. in the right. whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, 
does not say mine. Yeah, that's a great note to end on. <laughs> Thanks, George, for coming and being with us. Thank you. It's been a fun conversation. Now, as we're wrapping up, you, you mentioned uh, you've got some things that uh, you're, you're working on. Uh, is there anything you want to leave with us in terms of a way for folks to keep in touch with you or follow what you're working on? Sure. Uh, GeorgeGrant.net. There you go. That's easy. GeorgeGrant.net. All right. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Theology Podcast. Bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy another one of our podcasts, Got a Minute, featuring Larson Hicks and Rich Lusk. Theology, philosophy, economics, politics, and more for normal people.